All right. Well, let's, um, let's start by reviewing our text for this series. From 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. Listen to these awesome words. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. As we continue this season of challenge together, it's going to be more and more important to remember what we've already covered. We are talking about becoming better believers, or more precisely, becoming more like Jesus. And we're walking through this section from 2 Peter to do that, but the continuity of this text is incredibly important. The first four verses show us that none of this life change is possible without the power of God in our lives. Life change flows out of knowing Jesus better and better. The more we draw near to Christ, the more we can change. There is an all-important flow to developing Christ-like character, and we must constantly keep that in mind. Otherwise, we will quickly become overwhelmed and give up. Has anyone been feeling overwhelmed as we've covered some of this? Of course you have. We're trying to make spiritual headway here, and that is nearly always overwhelming. We try and we fail. Uh, we get back up again and we try again. And it's easy to just settle into a sense of guilt, which is not coming from God. And so I want to continue to make sure you understand that just making some kind of mental decision to be a better person or, or simply uh, trying harder to live right is not going to work and will result in nothing but frustration. We do need to understand our part. We've been talking about that, our part in this process. But we must constantly remember that without seeking God first, we will not truly grow or change no matter how hard we try. If you're trying to change while not seeking hard after God, all you'll wind up with is a bad attitude. <laughs> you may find yourself saying things like, why did something bad happen to me right when I was trying to do better? Right when I was trying to get involved in church? Right after I had stopped doing this or started doing that? Why did this happen to me when I was trying so hard to do what God wanted? If you have those kinds of thoughts, you miss the part where God is the one changing you in spite of yourself. You're not changing yourself, nor can you. When you think you're changing yourself, 
you may very well start to feel like God owes you something. I've seen this attitude develop many times in those who are just beginning to experience life change. Those who are just starting to make some effort to apply some diligence. Those who are just starting to make some effort to, 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 to walk a different path. Sometimes people think God is supposed to manipulate the circumstances of the universe as a favor, as a payback for our latest attempt to please Him. Let me say this clearly, God does not owe us anything. If you really do change, He will have been the one who changed you. And your effort is mostly a response to what He is doing in your life. Do you really think the God of the universe owes you something because you finally started trying to obey Him a little bit more? Of course not. Besides, God couldn't love you any more than He already does. He wants good things for you and He has good plans for you if you will only walk with Him. So please hear this. If you try to take on the five areas of life change that we are talking about in this series, not as an outgrowth of your relationship with Christ, not remembering that He is the one changing you, but rather as a human attempt to make God happy or earn His favor, you will not only fail, but you're likely to wind up further from God than you were when you started. And so I'll say it one more time. These character traits must flow out of your daily prayerful walk with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. God wants to change you because He loves you. And He wants your life to be better. As your relationship with God grows, the desires of your own heart change to be like His desires. And you begin to understand that His way really is better. As you know Him better, you'll want to accept these changes. You'll want to be more like Christ. You'll want to apply all diligence, as our text says. You'll want to make every effort to appropriate the power He's promised. You'll begin to value the power to change, which comes only from Christ in you. One of my favorite philosophers, Soren Kierkegaard, put it this way, Now, with God's help, I shall become myself. And, of course, he's talking about the self God designed you to be in the first place before sin messed everything up. As God works within us and calls us to live a new life in Christ, which is really the life He always intended us to have, we do need to respond on our part by applying all diligence. That's this symbiotic relationship we've been talking about. And we can help things along that God wants to do, or we can slow things down. Let's go back to our text to see this once again, only this morning I want to look at it from another translation. Since we're spending this whole series on one passage of Scripture, let's look at an alternative wording of these same truths. The New Living Translation is one of my favorites. I enjoy reading from it, even though I don't usually preach from it. One thing the NLT does very well with our text for this series is to take into account the partnership I've been talking about. When it comes to becoming more like Christ, God's power along with our best effort equals success. Listen to this truth as I read our text again, this time from the New Living Translation. The Apostle Peter writes, as we know Jesus better, His divine power gives us everything we need for living a godly life. He has called us to receive His own glory and goodness. And by that same mighty power, He's given us all of His rich and wonderful promises. He has promised that you will escape the decadence all around you caused by evil desires and that you will share in His divine nature. So, make every effort to apply the benefits of these promises to your life. 
then your faith will produce a life of moral excellence. A life of moral excellence leads to knowing God better. Knowing God leads to self-control. Self-control leads to patient endurance, and patient endurance leads to godliness. Godliness leads to love for other Christians, and finally, you will grow to have genuine love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more you will become productive and useful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop these virtues are blind, or at least very short-sighted. They have already forgotten that God has cleansed them from their old life of sin. Last week, we talked about moral excellence, and this week we come to self-control. But as mentioned, I know this can start to feel a little bit overwhelming. When it feels like that, please call to remembrance. Number one, that God provides the power. Go to Him for help. Number two, that this is all a process that builds upon itself. As our text says, knowing God better leads to moral excellence, which leads to knowing God better still, and that in turn leads to self-control. Remember this, every life change we allow God to make in us makes the next change easier. Every life change we allow God to make in us makes the next change easier. Keeping that in mind, let's get into the topic for today, self-control. Verse 6 tells us, knowing God leads to self-control. Now, if you're looking back at the New American Standard Translation, which is what I normally use, you see that it simply uses the word knowledge, not knowing God. But I spent last, uh, time last time, uh, last week, explaining that the knowledge of God or the knowledge of Christ is exactly what Peter is getting at here with the idea of knowledge. The entire passage talks about knowledge in this way. And so, yes, it's true. As the NLT puts it, knowing God leads to self-control. I love the simplicity of that statement. Notice that the order is critically important. Knowing God comes first. And it is through knowing God that we have the strength and change of heart that allows us to practice God's kind of self-control. Here again, we see our partnership with God within this very trade itself. We're not forced into this character quality or else why would it be called self-control? See, even if you get to know God very well, praying without ceasing, becoming a spiritual giant, there will still be personal effort required if you're going to have self-control. Implied within this word is the fact that we're not robots. No matter how well we come to know God, He never controls us like puppets on a string. No matter how close we get to Jesus, there will always be a part of self-control that is up to, well, self. But listen, here's the bigger point to remember. The closer you are to God, the easier it is to control yourself. The closer you are to God, the easier it is to control yourself. Incredibly simple, but also incredibly true. Yes, you'll still need to control yourself, but it won't be nearly so difficult if you are close to God. Get it? Now, if you've been in church very long, you've heard, the, you've heard of the fruit of the Spirit. The Bible says this fruit is developed in the lives of those who have trusted in Christ for salvation and therefore are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What are some words to describe this fruit? from Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I've always thought it interesting that self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. To be more precise, 
It's a portion of the fruit of the Spirit. One would think self-control should be all up to self. And yet it's listed as a fruit that is a result of the work of the Spirit of God. Again, we see that God works with, with us in this partnership to develop our character in Christ. So let's get into what Peter really meant by this concept of self-control. And we're going to do that by talking about three different areas in which we need to practice it. These are areas of our lives where Scripture teaches that God wants to help us control ourselves. <laughs> the first of those areas is physical self-control. Physical self-control. The original Greek word here literally means to keep one's passions in hand. That is simply to keep your own selfish passions from getting out of control. In the original language, this word was often specifically used to refer to controlling sexual passions. But in other cases, the context referenced alcohol. Hence, the King James version of this word, temperance. Temperance also means self-control, but specifically in reference to alcohol, at least in our usage of the word. So while the original word for self-control here can refer to any area where self-control is needed, the two areas most often referenced in the Greek uh, are sex and alcohol. Places where we have some trouble sometimes. Because of this, and for the sake of time, I've decided to pick on alcohol today. It was going to be one or the other. We, we picked alcohol today. I'm going to uh, share a story from my past to get started. This was a defining moment in my life. I was barely 13 years old. Anybody? 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 Any 13-year-olds in here? Oh, come on. You don't want to raise your hands. I know there's got to be some 13s over there. All right? I was, about, I was barely 13. I found myself at a basketball camp put on by the University of Missouri, far from home. We spent our downtime in a dorm building with no adult supervision, which, of course, was crazy. The age range was 7th grade all the way through 12th grade. I was in the 7th grade. One evening, some of the older kids had called a meeting of sorts to be held in a conference room within the dorm. I was invited. I was included. I was considered worthy of the sacred gathering. <laughs> After about 20 of us had gathered in a circle, the plot thickened. First, we were told that no one was to leave the room until the meeting was over. We were told that if anyone disclosed to the authorities the activities of the evening, we would be sorry. Then those who had organized the meeting produced the contraband. They had somehow procured a case of beer. I suppose in order to make sure everyone was guilty so that no one would rat them out, and like some ceremony out of Lord of the Flies, they began passing one beer clockwise around the circle from which each person was to partake. My best friend who had come to camp with me sat to my right. When the beer came to him, he dutifully took his drink. I had already made a personal decision about alcohol, and so I simply said, I don't drink, and it pa passed it on, hoping they would let it slide. They did not. After various types of pressure, they started tearing me down, as you can imagine. In the end, I was the only kid in the whole room who did not take a drink. After a few more attempts on their part, I blurted something out, got up, went to my room, and cried. But then, after a few tears, I began to actually feel pretty good about myself. I knew that I had taken the right stand. I had chosen not to break the law, not to break the rules of the camp, not to break my parents' rules, and most importantly, not to do what I knew inside that God did not want me to do. In fact, to this day, I've never had a drink of alcohol in my entire life. 
Somehow I've survived. I, I don't know. It's crazy, I know. Um, even though I am still sometimes ridiculed to this day, I've never regretted that commitment. Now, why do I share this? Well, I want the young people in this room to know that there are a few of us who choose to avoid alcohol even as adults. And that really, maybe it's not such a bad decision to make. The thing is, though, it will have to be a decision. A very committed decision. One made before that moment comes when alcohol is in front of your face. If this decision is not made in advance, obviously every single young person with the sound of my voice is going to consume alcohol at one point or another, most likely before they reach adulthood. A certain percentage of them will develop a problem with alcohol. Some might even die because of it. I want these young people to know that there's at least one person who made a choice at their age and never went back on it. And of course, I'm not the only person to do that, even in this room. But I bet somebody listening never realized that abstaining from alcohol for life was even an option. I'm here to tell you it's an option. Now, I'm not trying to call on everyone to be a teetotaler this morning, so relax. I might say, like the Apostle Paul did about being sin single, I wish that you were all as I am. <laughs> And yet he knew that wasn't going to happen, so he gave some other instructions. I would do the same and say that even though I might think it best to simply avoid alcohol for wisdom's sake, if you are going to drink, please be extremely careful and set very strict guidelines for yourself. I'm not trying to convert anyone on this today. And yes, I do know that Jesus drank wine. Jesus drank wine wine. I am aware. <laughs> I do not think that I am better than you or Jesus because of my choice. Hear me say that. My point today is about self-control. My point is that you either have self-control or you don't. As it pertains to alcohol, here's where it gets harder. You can't tell me that taking in a six-pack in a short amount of time could ever be considered self-control. I wouldn't drink a six-pack of Dr. Pepper. I wouldn't drink a six-pack of water. How does one take in four or five beers in like an hour anyway? I mean, you've got you to gotta be trying to do something. It's not natural to do that unless you're seeking some kind of high. To feel that, we don't want to say it, but drunk feeling which you might call a buzz, that drug-induced high which the Bible absolutely prohibits. Why else would you drink so much of anything? Years ago, I would clean out golf cars at a golf course so I could play there for free. Sometimes there might be 12 empty beer cans in one cart from one round of golf. I mean, if you're that desperate to get that feeling, don't they make pills for that? Wouldn't they? I mean, what's the difference? The only difference I can see in downing a six-pack and taking drugs is in how much you're going to need to urinate. <laughs> I don't have time to do my drunkenness is a sin sermon today. But let me just say that I have no doubt that some of you in this very room need to draw the line in a different place. I haven't been spying on you. <laughs> 
but I'm not as naive as you might think. Listen, I've seen way too many marriages, families, and lives destroyed by a little drug called alcohol. Way too many. You think it can't happen to you, so did they. Wherever you draw the line, remember this, and I'm telling you from a wealth of experience, never forget that alcohol can destroy your life. I know I'm picking on one thing. For me, self-control is driving by a Starbucks without stopping. Maybe it's not buying a new car every year or two, right? I'm a car guy. I love donuts. Okay, so believe me, I have my challenges in the area of self-control, so I'm working on those things too. Physical self-control, that's what we're talking about here. Do you have any? If you want to be like Christ, you'll need to get some. Do you take care of your body? Most of you know the Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Have you thought about that lately? The temple of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you should eat a piece of fruit. Every now and then, you know, or something. I mean, for the sake of the Spirit of God who lives inside your body, you might want to just eat an apple once in a while. Just saying. Maybe walk a thousand steps today if you can manage it, you know. Get out of your house. Get some exercise. Stop eating a bag of chips every night just to cope. Do some physical labor. Stop sitting around so much playing video games or binge-watching TV for hours on end. Set some limits for yourself. Stop with the horribly unhealthy energy drinks. Those things are murder on your body. Okay, enough with the 32-ounce Dutch Brothers syrup buckets. Because that's all it is. You're not drinking coffee, folks. It's a bucket of syrup. Drink water. You know, as God intended Take some control of your body and feel better. God's Word challenges each of us to have physical self-control. This is actually one of the primary things God wants to develop in you as one of His children. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A person without self-control is as defenseless as a city with broken down walls. This verse is about your body. People on the outside of a city could only see the wall. That's what they could see. And they could tell a lot about the city by the wall around it. Your body is like a protective wall around who you are at least to some degree, defining you, at least as far as what people can see. Self-control starts with your body. How are you doing? Where do you find yourself on this particular challenge? Do you have control of yourself physically? Do you eat right? Do you get enough sleep or you just keep watching TV into the wee hours because you don't have the willpower to turn it off? Do you have addictions you'd rather not have? Do you have lust issues that lead to other sins of the body? Do you have spending problems? How are you doing? Don't think about somebody else. Look at those numbers in your listening guide. One, two, three, four, five. That's there for a reason. And force yourself to do a little assessment. Circle a number. If you feel like you're doing really great with physical self-control, give yourself a five and on down the line. At least do it in your mind. Now, the second area of self-control that God wants to develop in us is emotional self-control. We could talk about fear. That's a big one these days. Or worry. Even prolonged sadness, just 
kind of keeping yourself stirred up in sadness, many other emotions. God wants us to learn ex- to exercise self-control over all of those things, those emotions. But for the sake of time, I'm going to pick on just one particular emotion this morning, and that is anger. In a letter written to new followers of Jesus, the Apostle Paul wrote, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. I don't think that's a list of random sins. I think all of these things go together. And there's a bit of progression. There's a progression here too. Each of these sins flows out of anger. Anger leads to rage, which can lead to malicious behavior, slander, and a filthy mouth. Sometimes when I get angry, I say the stupidest things about people. Things I know inside aren't even true. Slander. Anger makes jerks of all of us, doesn't it? That's why the Bible says, don't be quick-tempered, for anger is the friend of fools. Out-of-control anger at best makes you look silly. And at worst, it can destroy your life. Anger can destroy you in a single moment. We all have a list of things we wish we had not said or done. If only we could have controlled our anger. But did you know that it's possible to be angry and yet not sin? Anger itself is not necessarily a sin. The Bible says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Anger becomes sinful when you lose control of it or when you hang on to it long enough to nurse it into bitterness or a grudge. And that will kill you slowly. But losing control of anger in the moment can lead to a quick death. It really can. Out of control anger is a very dangerous thing. In fact, most of the word danger is anger. Some of you got that. But seriously, in a fit of anger, even someone who normally is a really great person might do something terrible, something he or she would forever regret. And where do we get this idea that says, if I lose control of myself in anger, I'm not responsible for my actions until I calm down? We bring this idea into marriage or any other relationship that gets close enough. We think if we lose it, we're not responsible for what's next. It was the anger talking after all, or the anger throwing something or worse. What a ridiculous cop-out. I've never heard a court of law say yet, well, he was angry, so it's not his fault. You know that temper of his. (laughs) No, we're held responsible for our actions regardless of whatever emotion may have led to them. Not only are we held responsible by earthly authorities, but we are held responsible by God. I wonder how much crime happens when someone loses control of anger. One moment of unbridled anger has almost unlimited destructive power. Anger is danger, and we need to remember that. Not only is anger dangerous, but if you are a follower of Christ, do you realize that people around you who are looking to see if there's any real difference in you will not separate your outbursts of anger from the rest of your life? They aren't going to think, oh, well, that wasn't the real Mark. He was angry after all. No, they'll remember me at my worst. That's another reason God wants us to exercise self-control over anger and other emotions because out-of-control emotions do not demonstrate Christ to the world. Don't believe that little voice that says you can't control your emotions. That's a lie from Satan. God's Word says that as one of His children, you have been given the ability to control yourself. Remember, this is part of the fruit of the Spirit, which means if you know Christ, the power is available. God never asks us to do anything without giving us the ability to do it. That includes emotional 
self-control. Now, let me say this. If you have an extreme problem with anger or other emotions, you may need the help of a professional counselor, preferably one who knows Christ, so that you can deal with the root causes of that emotion before it wrecks your life. Don't let pride keep you from getting help. Emotional issues often come from past pain. You may very well need some guidance in working through that pain so you can leave it in the past where it belongs. Do yourself and everyone else you love a favor. Get help if you need it. That said, in Christ, you absolutely can control your anger. In Christ, you can. Let's rate ourselves on emotional self-control. We've talked mostly about anger this morning, but consider all of your emotions, especially those negative ones. Is this a trouble area for you? Give yourself a rating with five meaning that you're doing great in this area and one meaning you've got a long ways to go. Lastly, the Bible is clear that as believers, we are called to have mental self-control. Now, maybe to this point, I've been a little short on the how-to I mean, how do you get control of yourself, right? Apart from the ultimate answer to that question, with God's help, I'm happy to tell you that the secret to both physical and emotional self-control is found in mental self-control. I'm presenting this point last because it is the how-to when it comes to the other two areas of self-control. And one interesting thing about this mental area is the fact that it is completely internal, You can't always control external circumstances, but you can control your own mind. It's not easy, but it is possible. So let me ask you a question, and I really want you to take a moment and consider your own own mind. Ask yourself, what do I think about? What do you think about? What have I been thinking about lately? Where does my mind default? What has been dominating my mind, my thought life? (laughs) Guys, when your wife asks you what you're thinking about and you say nothing, it's not really true, is it? Oh, I know we say it's true. No, really, it's true. No, really, but really it's not. You were thinking about something. Maybe nothing remotely important, but something. Maybe you don't even remember what it was, but you were thinking. You may have been imagining yourself fighting some war in the jungle, (laughs) making plans in case of nuclear holocaust, but you were thinking about something. And I'm not saying we always have to be thinking about something important. What do you mostly think about? What if you spent the next week Regularly asking, asking yourself this very question. What if every hour or two you stopped and wrote down what you found yourself thinking about? I wonder what you might discover. Jesus taught that most of our sin starts with wrong thoughts. For instance, one time Jesus said, It is the thought life that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, Eagerness for lustful pleasure, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All this bad stuff starts in our minds, in our thoughts. But listen, this also means that if we can get our thoughts under control, we can get our lives under control. Today, Jesus wants you to understand that if you can control, get control of your thought life, everything else will have a chance to fall into place. 
Let's consider adultery for an example. Adultery always begins with an impure thought, always. And usually adultery begins with many impure thoughts over an extended period of time. But if you never allow yourself to have those thoughts in the first place, you'll never get to the point of committing adultery. I can't stop thinking about it, you say. That's a lie from the devil. Your mind is one thing you can control. It's yours and you can control it. With God's help, if you know Jesus, you can control your mind. What about materialism, covetousness, the lust to always have more? If all you ever think about is the next cool thing you want to buy, you're going to wind up buying a lot of stuff <laughs> and failing to be a good steward of the resources God has given you. Worse, you're simply not going to be very Christ-like because you're focused on yourself and getting what you want. And that's far from his character. Jesus was about giving, not getting in fact, Jesus owned nothing. Maybe just remember that. Jesus owned nothing. I guess he had his clothing, but even that was taken at the end. What do you think about? Personally, I've been obsessing about how insane the world has become. They've lost their ever-loving minds. I have lived through perhaps the most radical and the most rapid cultural shift that has ever occurred. A shift that is almost 100% away from God and His truth. I've watched it happen. 52 last week. That sounds terrible coming out of my mouth. 52 years I've watched it happen. The situation is far worse today than it was three years ago. Much worse. And I've been dwelling on that a lot. I have a feeling I'm not the only one. You see, this does not bring about the righteousness of God in my life. No. What do I need to do? I need to get control of my mind and intentionally remember things like the fact that God is still the king of the universe. And in the end... His perfect will is coming to earth. I need to be diligent to remember that God loves sinners. And He wants them to come to repentance before it is too late. He loves them. We sang it this morning, the whole world. He loves them. When all I am is disgusted with people, maybe even hateful, if I'm honest. I'm not like God. If Jesus had thought like I have been thinking, would he have ever come to die for me? I think not. No, he would have wiped us all off the face of the earth. Mental self-control means I discipline myself to think the right things. Instead, of the wrong things. What do you think about? What do you think about? Self-control all starts with your mind. We need to get control of our thoughts. We need to learn to banish fleshly thoughts and worldly thoughts and self-righteous thoughts. And we need to have the discipline to turn our minds to something better. The Bible says, some really great things. And one of those things is this. 
We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are taking every thought, not every once in a while, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every single one of your thoughts ought to be harnessed and brought into submission to honor Jesus. Any thought that is dishonoring to him should be banished from your brain immediately. Sounds almost impossible, I know. Maybe that's why you don't make every effort in this area. Maybe it's why you're not applying all diligence on this one. You throw up your hands and surrender to the enemy without much of a fight, and he gets free reign, even though the Bible says God has given you the power to control your mind. Because it seems impossible, we, don't, we just don't do it. So how do you attack a problem that seems impossible? One step at a time. Has anyone ever trained to run a marathon? Okay. I'm not talking about walking a marathon like in 12 hours. I'm not talking about just showing up and running with no training, which is not very smart. I'm talking about going through a training process for months, maybe even a year, so that you can actually run for over 26 miles. It's crazy. It seems impossible. I never did run a marathon, but I did run several half marathons, all in my 40s. I can tell you that 13.1 miles seems pretty impossible too. <laughs> but when your wife starts running these things, I mean, well, that's the motivation right there. So Christy and I used to run gazillions of miles each week and we ran several half marathons. The only way we got there was step by step, a little bit further, a little bit further over a long period of time. This is the same way you can get to the point of controlling your thoughts. A little bit more and a little bit more until you have control from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep. Now, for the record, I'm not there yet, but I think I can see the finish line some days. You can control your thoughts. And when you do, you'll wind up in control of yourself. Remember, our text says, apply all diligence or make every effort. Nobody said following Christ is going to be easy. Nothing of any value ever is. The Bible says, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right. Boy, I'm wanting to apply that right now. I'll just let it go. Think about things that are pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Now, is that what you've been doing? Come on now. That's a really good place to start, though, in regard to mental self-control. You may want to memorize this verse as your first act of mental discipline. The next time you start to think about something impure or damaging or not like Christ, quote this verse in your mind and then think of something true. Think of something honorable or pure, or lovely, or admirable, or anything that's excellent or worthy of praise. With discipline, you'll find those impure or destructive thoughts fading away. Isaiah 26, 3 says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. If you want peace in your life, spend your time thinking about the Lord and his goodness. Now again, 
I realize that controlling your thought life can seem like an impossible task. And in your own strength it is. But remember what I said at the beginning. It all starts with knowing God. And as we learn to control our thoughts a little bit better, we end up knowing God even better, which helps us control our thoughts better. Additionally, remember that if you can control your mind, you can control your emotions and your body. This really is a great cycle to get into. And it all starts up here. So rate yourself on how you're doing with your thought life right now. Do you exercise a great deal of mental self-control? If so, give yourself a five. If not at all, give yourself a one. Now, friends, there is a fine line between conviction and discouragement. The last thing I want to do with this series is to discourage you. I want to challenge you, but I don't want to discourage you. You may very well need to be convicted about some things, but I don't want you to feel condemned. Let me say that if you are condemned, so am I. I'm not perfect, but I am on the way. If you are on the way, feel good about it. If you're complacent and going nowhere in your walk, feel convicted. This is all about saying what the God of love wants to change in you and partnering with Him by taking steps. Maybe they're just baby steps, but taking steps to become the person God longs for you to be, more like Christ every day. And again, none of this will happen overnight. And yet as you submit to God's work and make every effort to join Him, it will happen. It can happen in your life. Wouldn't it be wonderful to look back on your life a year from now and be able to say, you know, I can see that I've changed since then. I've overcome some of the things I used to think I would never overcome. And now I have new challenges. Listen, there is a joy in the journey. There's joy in progress. So now we're going to pray. And I'm sure you know there's no way you're going to be able to control yourself physically, emotionally, or mentally without God's help. So ask Him. Just bow your heads right now and, and ask Him. Don't just let me ask Him. You ask Him. Seek God in your heart right now. Get specific. What was it today? Was it something physical? Ask for help. Something emotional? Ask for help. Something mental? Well, we all need to ask for help with the mental because that will help in everything else. Father, we seek you. We know that there's nothing we can do in our flesh. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But in you, we can bear much fruit. And one of those fruits is self-control. Lord, help us to partner with you, to see where you're working, to listen to your conviction and to make changes. We've got a big problem right now in the world. There's a lot of problems. It's a really big problem. It's really, really bad. Maybe it's some of it's our fault. Have we been the light and the salt? Have we shared the gospel or just a bunch of political stuff? What if the church is a big part of the problem? And all we can do is gripe. 
about how bad things are in the world. How do we need to change, God? What do you need to do in us? It starts with one person. We can think about the church as a whole and get nowhere when you realize that you are the church. God, how, how, what, if I was the, what if the church, the whole church across the whole world was like me? Where would we be? What do you need to do in my life? How do you need to make me more like Christ? I submit, I surrender. Change me. Help me live it out. And I ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.